Well, this morning, as we continue our sermon series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we're returning to Jesus' words to his disciples just before his ascension. Two weeks ago, we considered Jesus' last words, so to speak, from the Gospel of St. Matthew, and we really were talking about this idea of baptism. But today, we're considering Jesus' last words to his disciples from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And so this morning, as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, we, we come to this big idea. In the time between Jesus' ascension and return, his church is given a mission, and his church is given power to complete that mission. And so as we look through Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, Jesus ascends as the crucified and risen cosmic Lord who will return. Jesus gives his church the mission of witness in the in-between time. And Jesus gives his church the Holy Spirit to empower that mission of witness. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. 11. Jesus here sets the mission and purpose of his church for the time in between his ascension and return. Let's set the context just a little bit here as we, we look at this idea of Jesus ascending into heaven. St. Luke here in Acts chapter 1 tells us that the disciples had come together with Jesus. This is another post-crucifixion post-resurrection appearance of Jesus over a month after that particular and peculiar weekend in which he was crucified on a Friday, dead and buried, and then rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. Luke records the ascension with a very, just a single verse in Acts chapter 1, and that's verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, I don't know about you, but this little verse strikes me as perhaps a little bit strange, a little bit odd, a little bit science fiction even. I can't help it, but when I read this particular verse, I've got uh, uh, Captain Kirk in my mind saying, beam me up, Scotty, and Scotty presses some buttons in his the starship Enterprise, and Captain Kirk's body is really weird, dissolves and disappears. Am I the only person who ever thinks like that? No, I guess I am. That's, what's that say about me, I guess, huh? <laughs> this isn't what's happening here. That's not what's happening at all. We have to notice that before anything else, the ascension occurs in the eyesight of the disciples who are gathered there on that mountaintop. They see it happening just as they saw him crucified, just as they received witness of his resurrection by having breakfast with him, by touching him, by hearing from him, just as they saw witness of his resurrection by breaking bread with him in that little village of Emmaus, so too they see with their eyes Jesus ascend, rise into heaven, riding upon a cloud. But where did he go, and what was this all about? When his sermon found in Acts chapter 2, St. Peter says that in his ascension, Jesus went to the right hand of God, that he was exalted to a place of 
authority and power. And so in the ascension, what we're seeing is Jesus take his rightful throne, his rightful place as the cosmic king. And I've used this phrase before in previous sermons, talking about Jesus as the cosmic king, that, that he is the one who is the ruler of all of creation, that he is the master of all time and space, that he is the only true galactic emperor. Peter connects the rising up of Jesus, his ascension to a place of privilege and authority, to Psalm 110, where David, who did not ascend into heaven in this way, wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This right hand of God is a place of significance, a place of authority, a place of rule. And to be seated at the right hand of God means that Jesus is enthroned. He's seated upon his throne as that cosmic king, the cosmic king with a rule and a reign that is timeless. To rise upon a cloud, to rise upon a cloud into the presence of God is itself fulfillment of a little vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. And in that passage in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet had a vision of one who looked like a son of man who rode upon a cloud and came before God, the ancient of days. And there, from the Ancient of Days, this one, like a son of man who rode upon a cloud, received from God an eternal dominion. He received from God glory. He received from the Ancient of Days a cosmic kingdom. The Son of Man's dominion and kingdom, Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7, are everlasting and will never pass away, will never be destroyed. So when Jesus ascends, he does so as the cosmic king. He is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. He has received an eternal kingdom, an eternal dominion, a universal kingdom made up of people from all nations and all languages. He ascended to his place, the right hand of God, was enthroned as the cosmic king, the ruler of the universe. And there... He is seated on high, far above every rule and authority, above every power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So far from being some kind of weird thing that happens in the life of Jesus, far from being a little blip on the radar screen, we must understand the ascension in its high and lofty place that because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus ascends having conquered. He alone is worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father. He alone is worthy to receive that glory. He alone is worthy to receive that eternal dominion, the universal kingdom, because he alone has done the work of redemption that was necessary and ever will be necessary for sinful men and women to be reconciled to God. And so Jesus is the king. The ascension is his enthronement as the cosmic king. But more than this, right, it's a, it shows us his enthronement as the cosmic king, but the ascension is also the guarantee of his return. I think chapter 1 of the book of Acts, verse 10 in particular, is relatively humorous. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. They're watching Jesus ascend. And have you ever seen something just amazing and overwhelming? 
that leaves you befuddled and dumbfounded? I mean, think about it. What if you were one of those weird humanoid aliens who saw Captain uh, Kirk just disappear, having been transported, beamed up? You would stare into that place, again, speaking only for myself, I would stare into that place with eyes wide in amazement, my jaw perhaps unhinged onto my chest, wondering what in the world is happening. It's almost the picture that that Luke paints for us here in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. They're watching in amazement as Jesus, the one that they've walked with, the one that they've talked with, the one they've eaten with, the one that they've camped with, the one they've fished with, the one they saw die, the one they saw alive, the one now is ascending into heaven. Daniel chapter 7 has to be in the back of their mind. They're good Jewish boys. They would know these things. And they're saying, holy smokes. Now what? Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from heaven, or from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just as visual, just as physical as Jesus' ascension is guaranteed to be his return. Jesus' ascension, in fact, guarantees his return. Jesus, the cosmic king, the one who is crucified and risen, the one who ascended to authority, he will come to judge the living and the dead, as our Nicene Creed states. He will come to raise the dead. He will come to destroy evil and cast it into eternal judgment. He will come to rule and reign in his new heavens and his new earth, as what Revelation calls the restoration of the earth. He will come to be physically present among his people and his kingdom, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the ascension guarantees that fact of his return. Just as you saw him go, so he will return. The thing for the church now is to understand that we live in an in-between time. We live between the rise of Jesus and the ascension and the coming descent of Jesus and his return. How then shall we live in this in-between time? Praise be to God, Jesus has not left his church to its own devices. Rather, Jesus has given his church a mission in-between And Jesus has given his church the power to accomplish that mission in between. There's real urgency for those who hear the gospel, real urgency to respond with faith, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, to be saved and brought into the kingdom of the cosmic king, given purpose and power. There's real urgency because Jesus ascended and he is coming again. And so there's real urgency for in the time between Jesus' ascension and his return for his church to be at work in the mission. Again, look at Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Before Jesus ascends, the disciples have a burning question. Look at verse 6, the latter half of verse 6. The disciples say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This question that they ask is one that reveals that even Jesus' closest followers had not yet arrived or understood the enormity of Jesus' work. The disciples were still thinking out of a limited view of God, his promises and his plans, as they were thinking only in terms of the people of Israel. 
But from the very beginning, God's plans have always extended beyond the people of Israel. They always had extended to the nations. In his first conversation with a man named Abram, recorded in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you're reading in the the five-day-a-week read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year program, you'll have noticed that this promise first made from God to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 is repeated to Abraham later in Genesis. It's repeated to Isaac, Abraham's son, later in Genesis. It's even repeated to Jacob, uh, Abraham's grandson, right around Genesis chapter 28. And catch this then, the Lord brought Abram out of his natural family into God's supernaturally formed family in order to bless not just Abram, but all the nations of the earth. In his letter to the church of Galatia, St. Paul connects the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram to Jesus. Know then, Paul writes, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What was that gospel preached beforehand to Abraham? Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How are the nations blessed in Abraham? By faith in Jesus, the one whom St. Matthew specifically refers to as the son of Abraham. St. Paul continues his thinking in Galatians chapter 3, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come through the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so Jesus, right before his ascension, when he's asked by his disciples, Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus subtly or not so subtly corrects the disciples' thinking and he directs them toward their now active role in God's mission, his work to fulfill his promise to Abraham, his promise to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, specifically Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, crucified, risen, now ascended to return. Jesus enlists the disciples who stood before him and all who come after them into God's mission. When he says, it's not for you to know these things, these times or these seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the end of the earth. If I'm not mistaken, this is where Father Forrest would add in and even to Destin. Folks, the people of God are entrusted by God to give witness to Jesus. But what does that mean? What does that mean to give witness to Jesus? Well, a witness is simply one who talks about a person or an event that has affected you. Coming up on February 2nd, what's happening on February 2nd? Anyone know? It's the Super Bowl. Sally Thede knows that it's the Super Bowl. Well done, Sally. That was the first thing right out of the Super Bowl. Yes, yeah, Sunday, February 2nd is the Super Bowl. What will be the dominant topic of conversation on the morning of Monday, February 3rd? Super Bowl commercials, let's be honest. The Super Bowl. 
right? You go see a new movie, you go see the new Star Wars movie, you go talk about it. You see an amazing football game, you go talk about it. You see something that changes you or something that you enjoy, you talk about it. That's giving witness to something. That's testifying to something. This past Sunday on January 12th, as we baptized six people into the church, as we heard testimonies about Alpha, we heard people give witness to what God is doing through the ministry of Alpha. That's testimony. That's witness. That's talking about Jesus. That is using words. Sharing about Jesus, sharing his life, his ministry, sharing his death, his resurrection, sharing his coming again, talking specifically about the difference Jesus has made in your life, sharing about life and meaning and purpose, living differently, valuing differently because of Jesus, being different because of Jesus is witness. It is testimony to Christ. Author Don Carson put it this way, the norms of the kingdom worked out in the lives of the heirs of the kingdom constitute the witness of the kingdom. Be who you are in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Give witness and testimony to Jesus using words. In the time between Jesus' ascension and return, his church is given a mission and his church is given power. And this includes you and this includes me. The mission includes me and it includes you. And thanks be to God, the promise of divine empowerment includes me and you also. I'm on a real Star Trek kick today, so let's go back to that just for a second. Can you imagine Captain Kirk sitting in the bridge of the USS Enterprise coming to orbit a new planet that they hadn't known? Can you imagine him looking over to the science officer, Kirk, or Spock, and say, Spock, give me a report on that planet down there. But what would happen if Spock doesn't have his fancy little scope that he always would walk over and look into? He couldn't do it, right? He couldn't do it. Kirk gave Spock a mission that he had the equipment to accomplish. Spock would walk over and look into that amazing device. And through the technology of Star Trek, he'd be able to know all the things about the planet that are now orbiting. What if Jesus were to say to us, hey, church, go and be my witnesses. And then left it to us. To left it to us in our own power, in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own courage, with our own words, and our own wisdom to be his witnesses in the world. How far do you think we would get? I grew up on a small farm in the middle of Kansas. Naturally, uh, I believe that my parents had children because that, that would, uh, provided a workforce for them. So I started driving a tractor at a relatively young age, but I never drove a tractor before my father spent hours upon hours upon hours upon hours driving it with me riding along. He gave me all the power and all the authority, all the knowledge, all the ability to drive the tractor before he ever gave me the keys to the tractor. What I'm saying to us is this. Jesus gives us a mission, but he gives us the power to accomplish that mission. And thanks be to God that the accomplishment of that mission is not dependent upon us because, folks, I look at you every Sunday. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> I look at me every day of the week. And if it was up to me to accomplish this mission, nothing would get done. But it's not. Jesus, getting ready to ascend into heaven, to assume his rightful place as a cosmic king, preparing to return, gives his church a mission to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. 
And then he gives the very thing necessary to accomplish that mission. He gives the Holy Spirit as divine empowerment. And the promise of divine empowerment, praise be to God, includes you and it includes me, just like it included the disciples standing there gaping at him in his ascension. So Jesus gives the mission, but then he gives the power to accomplish the mission, the Holy Spirit. It's so important for us to grasp this, so important for us to understand that we're not out there on our own figuring it out. Rather, Jesus has given the Holy Spirit. So listen to what missionary Leslie Newbegin has to say. The Spirit is given that we may be witnesses, for He is the primary witness to Christ, bringing the world now under the judgment, which is the final judgment, granting signs of the hidden victory, and giving to the human words of Christ's messengers the power of God himself. Jesus empowers our witness with the witness, the witness, capital T, capital W, the Holy Spirit. And so what we need to begin to understand, and maybe what we just simply need to be reminded of is this. It isn't so much that the Holy Spirit is tacked on to what we're doing. Rather, it is that we are caught up in what the Spirit is already doing, giving witness to Christ. You see, the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit are absolutely Christocentric. They're focused on the person, the work, the ministry of Jesus. And thus, our witness and our work are to be Christocentric. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit ultimately then is not for us and for our glory, but it is for God and God's glory. It is for the expansion of His kingdom. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for our good. It is for our growth in Christ. But ultimately, this gift is Christ-focused, Christ-honoring, Christ-witnessing, and thus is for the glory of God. With all that being said, what do we see the Spirit do to empower witness and testimony? Well, a brief survey from Acts can be helpful here. In Acts chapter 2, on that day of Pentecost, that day which fulfills Jesus' promise of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 10 days later, we read in Acts chapter 2 that the Spirit descends upon a group of 120 people locked up into an upper room. The Spirit descends and empowers witness to Jesus through the gift of speaking in unlearned human languages for the purpose of proclamation and praise. And the Spirit inspires courage and words as the members of the church were filled with the Holy Spirit. You think about who is the primary spokesman in Acts chapter 2. It's Peter. Think about where Peter was 50 days before Pentecost. Where was he the night of Jesus' arrest and sham trials? He wouldn't even, couldn't even bring himself to admit that he knew who Jesus was. And yet here we are, 50 short days later, Jesus on Acts chapter 2 is standing in a public place before the very group of individuals that had Jesus crucified, turned him over to the Romans and had him crucified. He is now standing before them proclaiming not only that he knows who Jesus is, but that Jesus is the cosmic king and they better repent because they're sinners. What's the difference? Resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. Where did Peter find the courage? Where did he find the words? It's the Holy Spirit. 
In Acts chapter 4, the Spirit, once again, we see, empowers Peter with courage and with words. And lest we think that it's only about Peter, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 31, the church gathered together and prayed for boldness, and we read, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What we see in these first few chapters of Acts is that the Holy Spirit empowers witness and testimony to Jesus by giving words and courage. That's a pattern. He gives witness. He empowers witness with words and courage. And I wonder, when I'm afraid to give witness to Jesus, when I worry about what other people will think if I give witness to Jesus, when I'm afraid and timid and I fear that I don't have the words, how often do I ask, Holy Spirit, come, make me bold and give me words? I wonder how often any of us ask for exactly that. The Spirit also empowers for witness and testimony by giving specific gifts to God's people. We'll talk more about that soon. The Spirit also works to transform our characters by growing the fruit of the Spirit within us, and we'll talk about that even sooner. But for this morning, let's notice that in the time between Jesus' ascension and His return, His church is given a mission and power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll bear with me, I have a final illustration, and then we'll talk about some implications of this passage. In this time in between Jesus' ascension and his return, given this mission to perform, given the power to accomplish, we believers in Jesus are more like Spider-Man than Batman. Think about it. Both are superheroes who fight crime and are able to do amazing things. But Batman is able to do these amazing things first because he's a billionaire and can afford all these cool gadgets, grappling hooks, batarangs, and things he has attached to his belt, what Jack Nicholson's Joker calls his wonderful toys. Spider-Man, on the other hand, has powers that come from within. He's been bitten by a radioactive spider as a young, unremarkable man, most certainly not a billionaire. Peter Parker's DNA was changed, and now he has the strength of, a, the strength of a spider, the jumping ability of a spider. He can walk up and down walls. He can cling to the ceiling like a spider. Now, while Spider-Man in the comic book has to develop and build the web shooters on his wrist, he's very different from Batman because he's changed on the inside, and that empowers his outward abilities. Believers in Jesus, every single one of them, from the apostles like Peter to every man and woman like you and me, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out mission and ministry, to be used by God within his mission to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus, the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ, who is to come again. So what difference does this make? What can we take away from this? Two implications from this passage today, two questions to ask when considering God and his mission. But before I get there, let me just simply stop and say, I believe it would be appropriate enough for us to stop right now and say, let's just give glory to God because we are recipients of his mission. We have received witness and testimony from others through the power of the Holy Spirit that have led us to faith in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are not a believer of Jesus without a parent in the faith. And so we should just stop and give glory to God. 
I believe we should also ask ourselves some questions. If it is true that in the time between Jesus' ascension and return, that his church is given both the mission and the power, the first question to ask is this, what kind of church does God expect for his mission? British author Christopher Ashe writes this, The ordinary local church, with all its imperfections, weaknesses, oddities, and problems, has within it the seeds, the spiritual and relational genetic blueprint of a broken world remade. Because the local church, a congregation of faithful men and women brought together under the faithful preaching of the word of God and the right practice of the sacraments given by God, we are a world being remade. We are called together by Jesus in the Holy Spirit, and then having been called together, we are sent out on mission. Here at Emmanuel, for the last several years, we've been defining this as our vision to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building His kingdom. We're simply talking about disciples making disciples who make disciples. And taking our cues from Scripture, God seems to expect His church to be outward-facing. Taking our cues from Scripture, God seems to expect His church to be bold, engaging with those who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior with the gospel in proclamation, in building relationship, in showing hospitality and loving kindness. This means a church willing to risk a church willing to be uncomfortable at times, a church that is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. God expects a church, I believe, to be saturated in prayer and in action through the power of the Spirit. That's why we're undertaking Alpha for the fourth time. That's why we're seeing an expansion of Alpha. That's why we have men and women in our congregation who are spontaneously starting Bible studies for non-believers in their own home. That's why we do things like the uh, barbecue competition in the fall, Holy Smokes. That's why we have a manual arts and music festival. That's why we have a recording studio. That's why we encourage creation of relationship. That's why we're praying as a church for people who do not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because we as a people are caught up in his mission. The second question is perhaps more uncomfortable even, is what kind of me does God want for his mission? I believe that our church will not be corporately what we are not individually. And so again, taking our cues from Scripture, God seems to expect me and to expect you to be outward-facing and bold, engaging with those who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior with the gospel, building relationships with folks who don't know Jesus, being willing to risk the self, to be uncomfortable at times, a life that is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, a life of hospitality, sharing of our time and our talent and our treasure, giving of the self for the purpose of witness to Christ. This means being saturated in prayer and in action through the power of the Spirit. This means saying, Lord, I am afraid. Make me strong. Lord, I don't know what to say. Give me words. Lord, I am timid. Make me bold. Lord, I'm a coward. Give me courage. If you haven't, will you commit to the 1102 prayer campaign? 
That's a campaign we began last week. We're at 11.02 every day. We offer prayers for three people that we would like to see the Lord use us in their lives as witness. If you haven't, will you commit to that? There's little prayer cards out on the Alpha table that can help you to remember. If you haven't, will you commit to inviting someone to Alpha and to joining with them, at least for the first night, and having them register? Our Monday evening Alphas launch off on Monday, February 3rd. We can talk about the Super Bowl commercials. If you haven't, will you commit to inviting someone to our Wednesday evening? Our midweek discipleship is an awesome opportunity for children and for youth to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now with the Gospel Project, we're currently working in Acts. For our adults, it's a wonderful time to be growing in our faith. Currently, Deacon John Bryan is leading through a conversation on belief in God in an age of science. If you haven't, will you commit to invite someone to your net group? Will you risk acknowledging your inadequacy and Christ's sufficiency? Will I risk acknowledging my inadequacy and Christ's sufficiency as we together pray for courage and wisdom and words? Simply in recognition that in the time between Jesus' ascension and his return, his church is given a mission and power in the Holy Spirit. It's for his kingdom, it's for his glory, it's for his honor. And it is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that I have said all these things. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you and give you thanks. Lord, don't leave us to ourselves. Convict us in our hearts and in our minds of the mission you've given and pour out upon us the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom, eyes to see, ears to hear, those around us, our family, our friends, and our neighbors who need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Give us boldness, we pray, wisdom and words to proclaim exactly that. May we be used here in Destin, in Fort Walton Beach, Salomar, Valparaiso, Niceville, and in our communities beyond, may we be witnesses to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit and so glorify his name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.